Welcome to Cypherpunk Bitstream 0x0f Privacy. The law won't save you. I'm Frank Brown and with me today is Smuggler. Hello. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm excellent. It's the beauty of pre-lockdown Berlin. Late at night. So. Ah, you mean before, before the, the next wave hits and we get another one? Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm currently taking bets. So I think that it will be either two weeks and I make it to HCPP. Uh, and I don't make it to HCPP without breaking the law. Or it's going to be three weeks and I'll have issues coming back. So those are is my guess so far. Oh, really? Why? New wave coming? Nah, because the politicians are talking. That's always a problem. You know, politicians talking is always an issue. And Isn't there some sort of election? Yeah, and that makes it even worse, I think. I'm not actually sure when the election is. Um, I'm not up to date when it comes to democracy, so I don't know. What? You're not planning to fulfill your civic duties and elect the next president? Well, I'm fulfilling my... Chancellor. I'm fulfilling my civic duties by uh, casting my vote to the only qualified candidate there is, which is nobody. Because nobody cares. Nobody <laughs> will be there for me. So I vote for nobody. Nobody will change anything anyway. Exactly. <laughs> Nobody's gonna fix this. So yeah, yeah. It's it's funny here in, in Switzerland for me because they have all these um, what's it called the uh, when the public can vote on certain issues. Referendums. They have all these referendums, and they um, there's always a lot of advertisement going on for these referendums and people on the streets handing out flyers and stuff. And I'm like this, can't vote anyway. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I probably wouldn't, but uh, in that case, it's like, I feel a bit like an outsider because I'm not allowed to vote. So um, Yeah, but Switzerland is this almost libertarian holy country. Why wouldn't you vote there? Everything is better in Switzerland. So they say, yeah. Almost no taxes. Well, yeah, right. Um, that's what they promised me. Reality is the taxes are whole, whole, uh, higher than you think. And then the rest you save, you spend on higher prices. Uh, but you have more privacy there. Yeah, that's the topic of today, right? So basically, you just move your company to Switzerland and then everything is fine. Exactly. Why, why didn't that work for ProtonMail? Uh, what happened uh, with ProtonMail? As far as I know, they, they gave the IP address of some uh, guy to France. So. Huh. Okay, I think the, the story was more or less that there was this French group that protested climate change and among other things, they squatted places and they had proton mail accounts, or at least one of them had a proton mail account. And France asked Switzerland via Europol um, to discover the IP address of an account. And proton mail was able to do that and gave the IP. And now everybody is pissed off. Because 
ProtonMail said, we're not logging IP addresses. But didn't they say they don't reg uh, log IP addresses regularly? Well, that's the difference, right? So um, that's kind of the topic for today. So um, what really happened? What does it really mean? And um, is there something like the holy jurisdiction, the country to move to, to protect all your data? Still looking. Still looking. <laughs> okay. That was a nice uh, podcast. See you later. No. Um, so what, what really happened? Um, the, what ProtonMail does for uh, the two listeners that don't know is um, it's a Swiss company that in Switzerland is operating email servers and you can um, get an account with them. And until recently, they said on their website that they're not logging um, IP addresses. And now everybody is pissed off because that IP address was found out. So number one, I'm not a big fan of ProtonMail, but I think um, people are too harsh with ProtonMail because logging IP addresses means that you keep IP addresses on record. So you have a logging uh, into a login into an email ac account there's an IP address that does the connection. You have an entry in your log file that says this IP address connected to this um, email account and you keep that entry for however long. That is logging, you know, log files that is logging. And then you have the issue that you always know which IP address connects to an email account, like in general, when it happens. Because that is how the internet works. You know, there's traffic coming over TCP IP in this case um, that makes a connection to your email server. That email server is responding and to be able to respond, it sends something to an IP address. So when you're active on the internet and you want a response, your IP address will be known. That is how the internet works. So there's no... Oh yeah, ProtonMail traced me or anything. It's no, your IP address travels with you wherever you go. And you can always see that IP address. So even if you don't have logging enabled, you can do stuff like perf monitoring or anything else on a computer to find out which process is uh, talking to which IP address. So that's number one. You know, like from a technical standpoint, if you think that any internet provider out there does not see your internet, your IP address ever, um, you haven't understood the internet. I'm very sorry. That's, you know, if you're connecting to the beast, you always tell them your IP address. It's just a fact. And then the, the next question is why did ProtonMail actually comply with the request from France? Hang on. So, so your point, your point is basically that they didn't lock the IP address. No. But when they were asked to record it, uh, once the person locks in again, then they did it. Yes. So, in detail, the technical part is probably like this. They likely have something like lock scrubbing. So, basically, the email server software on their machines probably produces standard 
log entries. And those log entries go through another program that they wrote. And that program filters out all personally identifying information. So that program filters out IP address, maybe even account uh, ID, stuff like that. And then whatever is left from that, which is anonymized, is probably still processed because you kind of need log files to be able to see how good your system is doing if there is a problem or something like that. So they're most likely employing something like log scrubbing. So the the personally identifying data probably never hits a hard disk. It just travels between those two con um, uh, programs and then enters into their logging infrastructure. So it's my guess. That's how I would do it if I would do it. And that's likely how they do it. A lot of other providers do the same thing. They, they use log scrubbing. And then this log scrubbing software likely has an exception. So you can do something where you can say, okay, log scrubbing software, let's say scrubber to it. Dear scrubber, um, remove all personal identifying um, data from everybody except for this one. You know, so when a connection from bad guy comes in, the email server creates a log entry, which is sent through the scrubber. The scrubber sees, oh, that's the account of bad person, and it doesn't scrub that entry. So it's relatively uh, easy to implement software, and it's more or less what most providers do that say something like, we don't lock, or we don't lock uh, private data. So it's that they're, they're using scrubbers for that. So because it's the easiest way to do it in a large scale, it's much easier to, than to patch the software directly and the result is the same. So, and what likely happened is that the Swiss authorities got um, a warrant and told um, ProtonMail, hey, we want to know the IP address belonging to this email account, which IP addresses are connecting to this email account. And since you're authenticating mm. to the account, there is something where you can make that link and know what connection does that. And then you tell the log scrubber, okay, don't scrub entries that have this, uh, this account ID, basically. And that is how the data is generated. Does it mean that Proton may light? No, I don't think so. It, I, I think that a lot of people never thought about what it means that somebody doesn't lock any, an IP address. I think that's the, and now everybody feels betrayed and etc. and saying, oh no, ProtonMail betrayed us. Um, but I actually think it's unfair. I mean, I don't, I don't like the marketing of ProtonMail. I think they're overselling themselves when it comes to protections, but I wouldn't say they have been lying. And I think a lot of people that have promoted ProtonMail simply didn't know what they're talking about. So your point is basically, okay, they, you think they didn't lock, but uh, when they, uh, and people kind of probably conflated logging and, you know, recording it or like making an exception when they, yeah. somebody comes with a warrant and, and they, they, they thought that uh, they actually have the possibility to refuse that warrant. Yeah. So to, to be exact, so if they were taking logs with identifying information, they would just have to ask the log database and say, hey, 
give me the IP addresses that connected to this account. But that's not what happened. They first got a warrant and then waited for the next connection. And then they had the IP address. But could they have not refused the warrant? Well, so a lot of people apparently think that Switzerland is the privacy haven of the world. And uh, in Switzerland, they have no bad laws when it comes to um, legal uh, interception. And that is simply not true. So the Swiss laws when it comes to um, data privacy are not dramatically different from that of any other country with one exception. So number one is that in Switzerland, if you get a warrant from a judge to give law enforcement real-time access or record stuff, then you have to do that. Like data that is flowing, you know? So there's basically data in transmission, data in, in movement, and there's data addressed. So when it comes to flowing data, All you need in Switzerland is a warrant on that. And of course, it has to be justified. It has to be concerning a crime where um, that is legal. And then you issue that warrant and Protomail has to obey that law. So if they get a warrant, they have to obey it. They can, of course, challenge it. So if you get a warrant, you can always challenge that. It's the same thing with, with most other countries on the planet. You can challenge warrants. You can say, no, this is not justified or, or something like that. And you may even win. Protomail is actually known for challenging warrants uh, quite a lot. And um, actually getting a lot of, or in the past at least, having uh, a lot of um, warrants thrown out and invalidated. But when it comes to real-time interception, that is the law not just in Switzerland, it's, it's the same everywhere on the planet. It um, differs in details. You know, there are details like what kind of crimes can you get a warrant for when it comes to interception. What was this other company called a, a while back? Wasn't it LavaBit? Exactly, LavaBit. So basically, it wasn't a similar situation where they then just shut down? Exactly. So that's basically the only thing they could have done, right? Like legally speaking. Well, the thing with LavaBit is they shut down because they also got a gag, uh, gag order, uh, which means that you cannot talk about it with anybody. Uh-huh. That's a thing that exists in very few countries, and one of those countries is uh, the US. So, in, I mean, gag orders for interception warrants exist everywhere, but they're a different strengths. So, in the US, um, it is so strong that it's actually hard to challenge the warrant if you get um, a so-called NSL, National Security Letter, because it basically prohibits you from even talk to your lawyer or uh, challenge the thing in court. So if you get an NSL in the US, you're fucked. You have to do it. And the only thing you can do is pull the plug and stop offering your service. In many other countries, something like NSLs don't exist. So you may, in no country, you're allowed to tell the person that is under surveillance that they're under surveillance. You know, you're always gagged against that. But um, you can talk with your lawyer, you can go to the court. And in most or in many countries, after the warrant has expired, there's actually a rule on notification so that whoever was surveilled has to be notified about that. And then it depends on who does that. Does the 
prosecutor does do that? Does the police do it? Does a, a service provider do it? Or is there a, a data protection agency that does it? So notification laws are um, quite common uh, by now. Doesn't mean that they work. So in a lot of countries with notification laws, you actually never get the notification because the police forgets, you know, and who are you to challenge them? You didn't even know that you were under surveillance. So, um, but there's no, no general gag order usually. So it's just time limited while, um, the case is active, like during the criminal process. Um, you cannot talk to it, uh, about it to outsiders. So you can only go upwards in the chain of command, so to speak, in the legal chain of command, um, but not sideways. And that is true in, in more or less all nations. So, and then, so that is like legal interception. You know, you, you have that everywhere. Switzerland is not an exception. It's, it's really the same there. There are countries where it's worse, like the UK, because the laws or the crimes that can justify legal uh, interception are hilarious. You know, like basically for shoplifting, uh, they can get a warrant to, to listen to all you do. But UK is really an exception. It's There are a few countries, in, especially in the developed world, that are as bad as the UK when it comes to those powers. It's basically UK and, Austra and Australia that are completely fucked. But um, even in the US, it's not that trivial to get a warrant for uh, legal interception. And in the EU, it's relatively hard actually to get it. So most EU countries have relatively high standards for getting uh, legal interception um, warrants. Mm. At least in theory, you know, practical is a different thing. So... Okay, and then, of course, you have more laws in, in Switzerland. The thing that is interesting in Switzerland, actually, when it comes to privacy, is their warrants for data addressed. So that means if you store data on a computer for a third party, then if the police wants to have access to that data, they have to get a court warrant for that. And you can challenge the, the, the warrant again, and you don't have to give up uh, the data until that challenge is resolved. And that is actually better than most countries, because in most countries, you don't actually need a warrant for data addressed. In most countries, you only need to, to ask nicely or get a prosecutor warrant or even just a police warrant. So those are three different levels, you know, so like you have court warrants, which means that the police has to go to the prosecutor, the prosecutor goes to the court and the court has to issue that after uh, checking the law. And mm -hmm. when it comes to prosecutor warrants, the, the police basically has to go to the prosecutor and the prosecutor can issue the warrant. And then you have police warrants and police warrants are basically either a higher up in the police or every policeman can just come up with a warrant and, and confiscate data address or copy data address. And in most countries, it's only a prosecutor warrant or a police warrant, or it's unchallengeable. So you have to uh, give it over before uh, you can challenge it, or you can't even challenge it yourself. And in Switzerland, uh, one of the interesting things is 
that they have a sealing regime, which means that uh, data at rest or even computers, cars, whatever, if there's a warrant for confiscating them, you can challenge that. And during the time of challenge, the object is sealed. So it cannot be touched by the police until uh, the warrant has been checked by the court. And that is something that at that high level, uh, I'm, I'm not actually aware of any other country um, that has that much protection for data or things at rest when it comes to confiscation. And that, of course, make, makes sense to have a, an email provider there because most of the data you're dealing with as an email provider are emails. And emails are usually addressed. You know, they're, they're written by somebody and then, of course, sent. You know, there's a, at least two mail servers involved usually. Or if the other party is at the same provider as you are, it's just one mail server. And then the mail sits around. You know, it's at rest. It's not in transmission anymore. And while it is in transmission, most countries would uh, consider it telecommunication. And that has a high level of protection. But the moment your email is stored on um, a third party's computer, it's not communication per se anymore. It's data that is stored for you. And it's the same thing with if if you... Uh, take care of my car. You know, I give you my car and say, Hey, you know, can I park it on, on your parking lot? Um, you basically have no rights to defend my car against the police. You know, the police can take it. If they say, Hey, smuggler didn't pay his fines. We'll take the car. You have no rights whatsoever to, to protect that. And that is different in Switzerland. So in Switzerland, if you hold something for somebody else, um, you have the right to defend the thing in itself in the courts of law. And that is true for email. And then when the email gets received, like you, you connect to your email server and then you pull it from your email server, then it's communication again. You know, but in the meantime, which is the longest time for the lifetime of an email, if you delete the email after receiving it. So the meantime, it is at rest and it's not actually considered communication by, by most countries. So it's not highly protected. But it wasn't the case there that they access the emails, right? No. Uh, it was just about uh, who accesses them. And yeah, so in a way it was conflating uh, privacy of emails with private, uh, like anonymization. Exactly. And which might have been caused by, by them overselling it. But, yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, the problem really is that a lot of privacy providers run around and they sell their jurisdiction. You know, they say, hey, we're in Switzerland, hence we're super secure because Switzerland has these great privacy laws. But it doesn't. It's bullshit. Yes, maybe compared to some things in the UK or some laws in the US. But it is oversells. You know, everybody believes, oh yeah, Switzerland will protect my, my privacy in, in all cases. No, it doesn't. You know, it's simply not true. They have laws as well when it comes to interception, when it comes to account data. So in this case, it's actually about account data, metadata that was created during the act of communication, but not the content of the communication itself. So mm. that is also lower protection than the content itself. So in the uh, comparison is, for example, in the US, you have the concept of a pen register. So the police can order 
a telecommunication provider to say, I, I want to know everybody who calls a certain number. And mm. that is way different when it comes to legal standards than actually listening in on the communication. So because the, the, the fact who calls who itself is not considered uh, communication. Sure. But what, do you think there are like better countries or is it just like uh, people didn't understand or don't understand usually these fine details between, you know, data at rest, data in motion and uh, what uh, companies can actually uh, protect themselves against? Well, I think people don't understand in general what the le legal regimes are. Another, just let me just give two more examples of, of what things happen uh, around the world. Sure. So one of the things that was a big discussion a few years ago was warrantless data retention. So that was about um, metadata of communication. And there was this big fight in the EU, courts involved, took, I don't know, 15 years or something. And... Everybody was like, oh, no, we can't go into the EU anymore because they have data retention. And then they went to Switzerland, for example. And the problem is that Switzerland actually has data retention. But nobody actually looks into the law. Switzerland actually has data uh, retention. It has exceptions to data retention. You know, stuff like email communication doesn't fall under data retention. Uh, So-called over-the-top communication doesn't fall under data retention. Uh, but funnily, it doesn't do in most other countries so far. You know, there's no data retention in the EU that um, considers email or over the top right now. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's it seems to be that often countries get like this um, reputation for something and then that changes and they still retain that reputation. I mean, yeah. with Switzerland, you have it with, with banking, you know, like the Swiss number bank accounts or, you know, banking privacy and, uh, which is, doesn't exist anymore for a long time. And it's actually super hard to, uh, get a bank account in Switzerland yeah. if you're not living here. Yeah. So if you're not living in Switzerland, there's only basically only one bank that gives you a bank account. Yeah. And that's only because they have to. Yeah. Um, and they, they, you know, they, they charge you a lot extra when you're not living in Switzerland just to, you know, discourage you from actually having an account with them. Plus, if you're an American, you don't get an account anyways. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a whole nother problem, of course. But, um, but even like, I mean, I, I, I was surprised, you know, when I moved here and then found that out that I basically had only one choice before I got registered. And then I read up on it and actually even Swiss citizens, have a big problem with that when they move abroad. Um, with getting bank accounts somewhere else? No, it's like keeping their, keeping their Swiss bank accounts. You know, sometimes banks close them or they, what they usually do is just they, they charge you these insane fees. So you close them yourself. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, for some people, like when you, depending on where you move, you kind of, you know, maybe they get a Swiss pension and they would like to keep their, you know, bank account and receive the pension. It's yeah. not like you can easily get that paid somewhere else. Um, so, but that's, I just bring it, brought it up as an example of where, where a country has a reputation and then the situation changes, but the reputation, um, remains. Exactly. Can also be in the other direction, of course, that, yep. uh, Yeah. situation actually improved but reputation is still bad yeah and i think that the 
one of the problems is that these reputations are used in marketing because everybody knows that nobody will actually look into the law. You know, if you run around and you say, oh, I'm a Swiss bank, you know, we respect our clients, you can do that still today, you know, because everybody still has this um, impression of Switzerland being like the most secure banking environment on the planet. And then you can still make money with that statement, you know, even if it is not as true as it was like 30 years ago. Yeah, of course. Um, for marketing, it's great. Data privacy is the same thing. Most people really don't understand the complexities of data privacy. They don't look into the law. And if somebody thinks that you have a, a great law there, then you run around and say, hey, you know, we're a privacy respecting um, uh, country. And when it comes to Switzerland, it's not, Switzerland is not dramatically better when it comes to, to privacy than, uh, for example, Germany or Austria. Or Iceland is not dramatically better than Sweden, for example. Uh, Sweden is actually really good. And so there are these, these things that as a provider that is sitting in the country, you, of course, use that for marketing and then everybody believes it. You know, you're tapping into this uh, notion and repeat it and repeat it. And then everybody thinks that it's a sign of quality. And in reality, it might not actually be. Yeah, I mean, it's the same, like the, the, the good old, you know, made in, you know, Switzerland, made in Germany, whatever. Yeah. It's, it's a country gets a reputation for high quality products. And then you, uh, you tighten the final screw in that country and put the made in that country on there. Yeah. Like, even though your components were all made in China anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Let's just throw in the last misunderstanding about, um, privacy laws in, in Switzerland when it comes to, to computers, telecommunication and stuff like that. Because mm -hmm. that's another thing that people simply never think about. And that is Switzerland is a really small country. And if you're using a Swiss communication service, it's very likely that you're not a citizen. You know, yes, if you're a citizen, you might actually participate in everything fine of what these laws uh, say. But most people that are using ProtonMail are not from Switzerland. And that means that they are subject to the warrantless capturing of foreign traffic by the Swiss uh, military intelligence agency. Because the Swiss military has the right to tap into all foreign traffic. Like get the net flows, uh, see uh, what IP addresses communicating with that, uh, who, and actually look at the packets themselves. And they don't need to warrant for that. They don't have to justify that. And um, all ISPs that have cross-territorial um, connection or connections that go outside of, of Switzerland have to support that. So it's a, it's a common thing. It's, and it's not special for Switzerland. It basically is more or less the same for most countries on this planet. You will have an agency that says, okay, I can look into a certain uh, percentage, at least, of the traffic that goes out of the country or comes into of the country. And when it comes to traffic that doesn't originate in the country or doesn't go to the same country, then that traffic is out of law anyway. So you can look at it. None of the protections of the law apply, at least in most countries, that's the case. Uh, there are exceptions to that. There are um, 
countries that have restrictions on how much traffic they can look at, etc. But in general, the rule is that you will have intelligence agencies in your own countries that have the right to, to, to look into stuff, and they do that. And that's the same thing in Switzerland. So if you're a ProtonMail user, your IP streams to and from uh, ProtonMail, yes, they're encrypted, but they can still see that you are a user of ProtonMail. They will know your IP address. And they won't know which account you have necessarily, or not without uh, adding extra intelligence and, and actually becoming an active attacker, but they know who or which IP addresses are customers of, of ProtonMail. They know that. And they can because it's a law. So that's like the, the facts of Switzerland. And there's no huge difference between them and, let's say, Iceland or uh, Sweden or Netherlands or Germany or Austria or Czech Republic. And so it's, it's more or less the same for a lot of countries. I mean, there are, of course, countries where it's much worse. But in general, with the exception on the strength of warrants for data addressed, privacy is not that dramatically better protected in Switzerland than in most other developed countries. And yes, the US and UK are not examples of very private countries. They're just bad examples. <clears throat> but are there any good ones, in your opinion, where it's, you know, much better? Well, <clears throat> so there are countries that don't have certain laws. For example, there are countries that don't have specified laws for warrants on data addressed. Or there are some very small countries that don't have laws on lo illegal interception. But the, <clears throat> I think there's, there's a, a misconception there. And that is just because a country doesn't have a certain law doesn't mean that they cannot do it. Because there's, in a way, a codified law does not only tell the ISP what they have to do, but it also uh, creates boundaries for what the police can do. And if you're in a country where those laws not exist, that usually translates to the police can ask you for anything. So if you don't have a legal definition for these things, then it's... It's up for the grabs, usually. And it's preferable to have a country with codified law. So that excludes actually a lot of the diverse places to hold your data. So I had a customer a while ago who was talking about storing his data and doing a phone hub in Congo. And the reality in Congo is there is no law for interception, but it doesn't mean that they don't intercept. It just means that you don't have zero uh, protection. They, they can do whatever they want. And I think that's, that's the issue number one. And issue number two is that even if you have a country that looks better on paper, it doesn't really mean much because if you have a law, let's say in the C-chats, you know, you have a law that protects your VPN provider, for example, from divulging information. Then the big question is, how does that law actually help you? Because you're not going to sue your VPN provider on the Seychelles 
if the VPN provider breaks that law. So if, for example, the FBI asks the Seychelles, hey, um, we want information from this VPN provider, and the VPN provider is then bullied into doing it, especially because the operators don't even sit in the Seychelles, they are not actually able to, to challenge the warrant themselves because they have no legal representation, then they have to do it. And what are you going to do? Are you going to sue your VPN provider in the Seychelles? You're not. Is that offshore company that runs your VPN, is that able to resist warrants? No, they're not. In, in reality, they'll just ignore them. And then the warrant gets transmitted to whatever country the server is actually located in. And then the police does it themselves because uh, you clearly didn't stick to the law and you yourself are an illegal entity in that instance. So I think the... The reality one has to come to is that there is no perfect place for your privacy when it comes to the law. There is not. It's like with taxes. It's like with taxes. Because in the end, there's crime that is happening. There's, uh, you know, there's cybercrime, there's cyber espionage, blah, 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 all this shit. If it's big or small, it doesn't matter, you know, but it's on the political agenda. And then you have international treaties that are created, often through international organizations like the ITU or Etsy or whatever. And if you want to be in good standing with the other countries on the planet, because you want to trade with them, because you want to connect your internet cables, because you want to have an, um, an internet domain and a routing code and all these things, you have to cooperate. And then those international legal frameworks are created, which say, okay, every member state should create certain laws. You know, you should create a law against stealing data. You should create a law against breaking into systems. You should create a law for uh, wiretapping and so on and so on. And of course, these things are created because if you want to play with everybody else on the planet, you have this minimum standard, at least on paper, that you have to adhere to because every other country asks for that. Plus, you yourself, as a country, you're probably interested in that. So your police and whatever is going to lobby for surveillance laws. And that is how countries get these laws. And then you have stuff like multilateral assistance treaties. You know, you want to be in good standing with the US. One of the conditions is that you participate in their MLAT framework. So that basically means that If the US calls you and says, we want to have a wiretap or whatever, or we have a, a police investigation against somebody, that there's a framework for cooperation. And that basically usually says that, uh, yes, we're going to help you if the law is in our country would consider the same action to be illegal as well. So, and that is mm -hmm. how cooperation across jurisdictions happens is because of these either frameworks or bilateral uh, contracts that say we're going to help each other. And essentially, if you want to be able to internationally operate as a country, you more or less fall into any of those categories. You know, either you are part of the Etsy treaties, the ITU treaties, you have an MLAT with the USA, um, you're a member of Europol, you're, you know, all these things. And then you do that, you know, because otherwise you're Afghanistan 
and I wouldn't have an email provider in Afghanistan. Hmm. Maybe somebody should talk to the Taliban about that. Yeah, great idea. <clears throat> we'll, we'll come to extreme solutions for that later. We can talk about <laughs> hosting stuff <laughs> in Kabul. I have a few friends who try to bulletproof hosting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a different different meaning to bulletproof hosting. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, that's 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 the issue with the law. You know, the issue with the law is there's no perfect law on in any single country on the planet. There isn't. There's only worse and really bad. So it's getting dark already. Are we gonna get darker? Um But do you think there's something you could do to, to solve this or uh, as a company or as a service provider, let's say? Well, I think there, there are two ways to do that. So there's the way that I play around with and then there's a way that is bullshit and you hate it. So I'll do the thing that I know about and then you can deal with your favorite uh, false approach. So the, what, what, what my favorite, what's my favorite? Your favorite false approach is, uh, loopholes, legal loopholes. And you hate that. Ah. So, um, you should talk about legal loopholes. Um, I'll talk about jurisdictional arbitrage. So jurisdictional arbitrage is this concept of using the law of different countries against each other. So, uh, for example, you have a server in country A, but your company is in country B. And that makes certain warrants um, much more complicated. It gets even worse if the server in country A is owned by, uh, by a company in country B, but is used by a company in country C. And then it becomes really complicated on who has to um, get which warrant, who has to uh, execute the warrant, who has to cooperate in which way. And if you constructed the correct way, the legal ramifications from that can be mind blowing. You know, it's, you throw a lawyer in the middle of the mess and you can watch them for uh, a week or two um, before they actually come up with a strategy on how to execute the warrant. And that is one of the things you can do. The other thing you can do is you can try to find places that do not have a multilateral assistance treaty with whatever place you reside in. If you have uh, your server in country A and you yourself are in country B and those countries don't talk to each other or aren't friendly with each other, then that can give you some protection. So, for example, until about, I don't know, ten, five to ten years ago, a lot of cyber criminal activity was uh, happening in Ukraine for the simple reason that The justice system there was highly corrupt, that they really didn't care what any Westerner said, and they had a pretty good internet. So it was really good to have your resources in Ukraine, because if you didn't piss off the Ukrainians themselves, they would rarely do something against you. The same thing was true with Japan, still is to a certain degree. So Japan for a long time didn't execute any IP-related warrants, uh, like um, IP in this case is intellectual property. So intellectual property-related warrants in Japan were not executed 
unless they uh, had anything to do with Japanese companies. And that meant that you could um, host a lot of um, pirated stuff in Japan, as long as you made sure that you wouldn't host anything produced by a Japanese company. So similar concepts exist still, for example, in, in Russia. So if you're doing stuff in Russia, the Russian police usually doesn't care enough about you as long as you're only pissing off the Americans. Or the Chinese police really doesn't care about you as long as you don't piss off the Chinese. So mm. they're just not very um, eager to cooperate with, with Western countries. The only problem with that pr approach is that if for some political reason a sign of goodwill is required, then you are on the list of potential goodwill gifts that they will make to the other party. So that is actually how a lot of, especially Russian hackers, are, are fucked, is that they lose the protection by the, by the Russians and then are made as a gift to the Americans, for example. It's not that common right now, but it was a bigger thing in, in the late 20, like 2000 to 2010. There was a lot of gift making there. And you don't want to be the gift. And there's no way you can predict when you are going to be slaughtered for a little banquet between future friends. So it's, it's not a very stable thing to do. However, if you design these approaches correctly, you sometimes come into that position where until a warrant really comes into effect and can be executed and all the data can be collected, um, that the warrant itself expires. So warrants usually come with an expiration date and they have to be executed during a certain uh, time duration. And if you can design your legal structure in a way that it just takes forever to resolve the thing between the states involved, then no warrant actually is valid when, when it uh, gets to the end. And that is actually what some people really figured out how to do, how to perfect that. And the perfection there is what I will call uh, ephemeral registration. So the idea there is that you set up a company in jurisdiction A, you operate uh, your service with that company for, let's say, two weeks. And then you have another company, B, that continues operating it. It's a different jurisdiction. Then in another jurisdiction, you have company C, and that takes over after another two weeks, and so on and so on and so on. So you basically, until the heat actually hits you, the company is already somewhere else in a different jurisdiction. And then you basically circle that around. You know, you take whatever 10 jurisdictions, 20 or 30, and you, and you circle that around. And if you have whatever, 26 jurisdictions, um, you hit every jurisdiction for two weeks uh, a year. And when the police knows where to send the warrant, you're already gone. And that is actually a strategy that, for example, Telegram has used for quite a while very successfully. I think they're not doing it anymore. As far as I know, they're actually domiciled in, in Dubai by now. But for years, that was their way to escape legislation and warrants and stuff like that. And it's relatively um, successful. And it's actually a strategy that is used a lot by money launderers and, and similar. 
so they set up companies, they do a few uh, transactions, then they close down the company and file their, their last um, records and then disappear. And if mm. you do that with the right jurisdictions in the right um, tempo, you can basically uh, suppress paper trails. And it's the same strategy uh, that kind of works in data privacy, but it is very expensive. So you have to be able to throw 20, 30, 40,000 euros at the problem per month uh, to be able to execute them. And it really requires a small army of lawyers to, to create it and maintain it. And mm. it also requires a lot of uh, personal OPSEC because it doesn't only apply to the companies themselves, but it also applies to the management of the company. And that's, it's a really hard thing to execute successfully. But if you, if you can set it back up correctly, you can be faster than law enforcement, for example. And I'm not recommending that, you know, it's an educational podcast here and we're talking hypotheticals, you know, we're not saying this is what you should do. It's not a good idea. It, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, this designer drug scheme, I think used in Germany and a few other countries where they have this, this analog drugs, which are similar to, you know, forbidden drugs, but are actually a different uh, chemical component and, and the law at least I think they're going to change it soon, at least for some areas, but, uh, it was that you actually had to, you know, outrule every component. Yeah. Uh, like the, the, this chemical formula. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they basically, you know, took a, they always came up with new drugs, new analogs, and they could sell it for, legally for a few weeks. And especially like with the, with this, you know, cannabis analogs, they, they kind of mixed it with all the other stuff. So it's not easy to, um, like they mix it with some, you know, um, herbs basically yeah. and then uh, so it's not easy to actually isolate the, the molecule and then outrule it so that takes a few few weeks minimum probably more like months and then once they did they they were already producing the next one so um there's actually i think there's a um a shop in berlin that is selling lsd analogs i read something like that recently yeah exactly and that, that that's um I think it's like a, basically a precursor to LSD, but when you consume it, your body makes it into. Ah, yeah. Okay. But it, as far as I know, that, that, that loophole, they're going to change. So everything that basically your body processes into LSD will become illegal. Okay. So, oh, that sucks. But they already, as far as I know, they're also already like on, it's not the first iteration they've been through. Yeah. So. So people have been stocking up on this stuff while it's still possible. But it's, it's a similar approach. You know, it's this um, run faster than the law. Either you, you run faster than the law is made or you're running faster than the police. That's basically the two ways you get away with stuff. Yeah. But it's a good segue actually into, into loopholes um, or the, the loophole, what we like to call the, the loophole fallacy. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so basically the, the idea or the, what we mean by that is that, um, from what I've seen is that people, they often look for like legal loopholes, um, thinking, okay, if I, if I find this, you know, yeah, loophole, say, you know, 
specific find a country where something is legal or something like that or it's not forbidden then they that i that they can actually get away with it and and i think the main problem like in an abstract way with with the loophole fallacy is that uh, first of all it kind of assumes that states actually follow their own rules oh you know okay and um and the other one is that it, it remains static, yeah. So that it doesn't doesn't change. It's almost like it's it's like it's very procedural um, thinking of how the how the law works, you know. Because mm-hmm. you know, okay, it's technically illegal, and that's then we can just use this loophole, and they they're not gonna they're not gonna change it, and they're actually gonna follow the rules and. Uh, I had this with an, with an old friend with, uh, when he was super frustrated about uh, German tax laws and he was trying all these loopholes. And I had it myself, you know, and you, you, can, you have this idea. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe we just do this, you know. And, and when, you, when you actually talk to a tax advisor, it usually turns out that this loophole has been long closed yeah. because that's, that's, the, that's the actual game. You know, people come up with some loopholes but then, of course, the legislator closes them, or it's just courts that close it, right? So I think the one of the loopholes in in the tax field for a long time was um, you get an LTD in in London in in the UK and operate it from there, and you think, hey, you know, the German tax law doesn't apply, and the ruling more or less was, yeah, but if the company is uh, factually operated from Germany and if whatever the decisions are made in in Germany, then in addition to UK law, uh, German law applies on top of it. And I think that that was a very common loophole that people believed existed. And I believe, and I think it only uh, existed for a very short time. Yeah. And I think now they they actually have like in German tax law, they have this anti-loophole legislation. Oh, right. You know this? Yeah, if you do something to escape taxes, it, it makes it illegal. Exactly. So if you if you do something just to avoid taxes, even if the thing is Ill- is legal, then it's still tax evasion. So it's not enough anymore to basically um, you yeah, find a loophole. You actually need a valid business reason for it, yeah. which you usually don't have. Um, uh, so, so that is a, the one big problem is the loophole fallacy. And the other one is actually to assume that the state actually follows their own rules, which is not necessarily the case, right? Like you were saying with the, the, the Congo thing, uh, when, you know, they don't have a rule for that, but well, yeah, but if they want to, they're going to, you know, look into you anyway. Yeah. Right. Because why wouldn't they? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's actually a good point. So what we're seeing, what is happening right now is actually that uh, countries are becoming masters in exploiting their own loopholes and creating uh, something like jurisdictional arbitrage for themselves. There, there's a great example for that, and that is the uh, EncroChat case. If you're not uh, familiar with that, so EncroChat was this company who sold mobile phones with encrypted messengers. And um, they had a lot of uh, customers that were, uh, let's say, um, 
active in in the creative money uh, making scene, say uh, drug dealers, etc. And they communicated with EcoChat. And what happened is that a lot of countries actually came together to find a way on how to uh, get into EncroChat. Um, so it, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on the details, but one of the countries was um, the Dutch, who have this nice law that they can basically hack systems outside of the Netherlands legally, the police can do. And then they employed the French because some of the servers were in France, and they together produced basically clear text messages. They, they infiltrated the system. They infected the phones themselves uh, and put um, spyware on the phones that basically added an extra key to, to the encryption. So the police could decrypt the information. And then they shared the database of decrypted data with other countries in which an operation like that would never have been legal. So they did, they did their own jurisdictional arbitrage. Exactly. They did their own jurisdictional arbitrage and exploited loopholes in their own laws um, to make this attack against, against EncroChat. Or the, the other thing was this uh, FBI sting operation, Enom, or Anom, where the FBI created an encrypted messenger and phone but they couldn't put it into the market in the US because that would have been illegal because you first have to know that it's actually criminals and then you can wiretap them. You cannot wiretap them and then find out that they're criminals. So they did it with the Australians, I think, and gave the stuff to the Australians. And then from Australia, it was resold all over the world, but the FBI was still not allowed to uh, take the data directly from the phones. So what they did is, I think they cooperated with Romania or Bulgaria, where they actually set up a server to just receive those messages. And then the Bulgarian police stole the, the decrypted data from their own servers and gave it to the FBI. So in, in a way, all of them did things that as a whole would be illegal, but their little pieces that they contributed was legal in their countries. And that is how they could create this, this global sting operation that in every country itself would have been an illegal act. And so it, what you have is that essentially you have organized state crime, you could call it. You know, they're exploiting um, jurisdictional arbitrage. They're creating and exploiting loopholes. By now, I actually think that a lot of laws that are written actually have that in the back of their minds, that they're cooperating on how to write laws to create those situations where they can escape their own laws. And mm. at least that is my my suspicion. And it's it's becoming highly professionalized. So we, we've seen a couple of those operations over the last, I would say, eight, nine years. And there's almost always the, the Dutch... Uh, are involved in that because of their, their hacking laws. There's very often the French involved because of their second laws or it's the Americans that are involved because of their second laws. So the, it's, it's really interesting how 
there's this new method in, in police operations coming that basically escapes any law on a, on a national level. And it becomes really interesting because there are a lot of countries that have, don't have this, um, fruit of the poisonous tree regime. So that, so there, it, it basically means if evidence has to be collected illegally, it cannot be used in court anymore. But there are actually very, very few countries that have this, this uh, procedural law. You know, America has that and we all believe everybody else has that as well because all our TV shows come from America. But it's actually not true. Most countries don't have that. Uh, most countries uh, say that it's more or less up to the court to, to compare what is a higher legal good. You know, is it the illegally collection of the evidence or is it the case itself? So mm. uh, courts basically can make the argument for or against, and then depending on, uh, on how it ent- uh, ends, the evidence that is illegally collected can still be used. Again, the example would be the Anchorchat uh, case where German police would never have been allowed to collect the data. The, the process of collecting it is illegal by German law. But because it was legal or potentially legal for the French and, and the Dutch, and they just gave the data to, to the Germans and the Germans didn't actually like cooperate with them or ask for the data that basically made the data legal, the evidence legal. And there's this term for that and it's, uh, evidence laundering. So if another country, another police can create, or, or not just create, uh, find the evidence legally while you can't, <clears throat> and then they give it to you, then that bypasses the restrictions and the evidence becomes clean again. And that's something that is, is a real uh, issue. And they do the same thing when it comes to intelligence data. So what you often have is that a country cannot give intelligence data to their police because there's a legal barrier between intelligence work, like a secret service and, and NSA, FBI, whatever, and prosecuting uh, agencies. And so in the US, it's not that strict, but in, in Germany, for example, uh, the BND or the uh, Constitutional Pro- Protection Authority cannot actually share data with the police as evidence. And what really happens then is this, what is called intelligence laundering. You know, you have the the agent that is working for the BND meeting a friend who's working for uh, the federal police and they share the data, but they say, hey, you have to come up with a different way on how you know that. You know, where did it come from? Um, to, yeah. to constitute, for example, a reasonable suspicion for a warrant or something like that. And then parallel construction comes into, into place where the police comes up with a different story on how that data could have ended up in their hands. And sometimes it's just uh, an elaborate, confusing story that nobody's going to follow up on. And sometimes it's just a, a pure lie. You know, they'll just say, oh yeah, we have multiple anonymous tips from different sources. And then, because they learn, you know, the, the first thing they tried is we had um, a call from... Uh, a reliable uh, source that we have used a lot of times 
and um, he said X, Y, Z, so we did the warrant. And then there were court cases where people said, okay, you know what, we would like to to talk with that source, you know, and then, oh yeah, well, that source doesn't exist anymore. And it's actually funny because there there have been several cases where the um, defense discovered that there were dozens of sources that were actually paid by the police that never existed. So it was the police officers taking the money themselves, uh, inventing sources, and then laundering <laughs> intelligence those uh, through those invented sources while making money. So it's a win-win. It's a win-win situation, awesome. except for the taxpayer and for the defense. But so much for they don't follow their own rules, right? I mean, this is like less than not following the rules. It's, it's committing a, a crime in and of itself. Yeah, but the response to that is. It is very sad, uh, but rare exceptions to the rule. It, it's, it doesn't happen usually. There's always a few bad apples, right? Exactly. What can you do? So, and, and the interesting thing is that there are actually real constructs on how to launder intelligence. So, for example, everybody knows the five eyes and 14 eyes terms. And what that really means is there are contracts between countries on uh, how their intelligence agencies uh, cooperate. And it basically just means that in certain cases, those agencies are allowed to cooperate and can share data, or they can participate in certain projects together. So for example, when it comes to five eyes and 14 eyes, those are mostly focused on signals intelligence, so wiretapping on an international uh, scale. And they operate those systems together and they share data together. And the funny aspect of that is you might have something like the US is not allowed to listen into their own citizens while they're in the US. But there's another country like the UK that has no rule against listening to US citizens. And both the UK and the USA are part of the five eyes. So what can happen is that the US basically asks the UK, did you by chance uh, have any recordings of these people in the US? And the UK says, oh, yeah, sure, we have it. You know, here, here you go. You know, so that's another form of, of intelligence laundering where intelligence is gathered for somebody, even if that uh, somebody couldn't gather it themselves. And mm. the problem with that is that it undermines the law against all the legal protections became uh, practically irrelevant. Now, the problem is that people out of that conclusion make, okay, you shouldn't be in a five eyes or 14 eyes country because then they will spy on you. But the, there's a there's a mistake in the thinking. And that is what those countries really do is each of those countries spies on everybody else. And if you're in a country that is not a five eye country, then all those five countries spy on you and not just four. You're basically... Uh, a designated target. You know, if if your country were in five eyes because it can be trusted, your own country wouldn't spy on you, etc. But now you have these; all of them are spying on you because you are a target. So 
it is, in my opinion, it's actually safer to be in a five or 14 ice country than not to be. Well, I mean, <laughs> but it doesn't make a big difference. Well, it, right? well, it, it, practically it, speaking. No, it actually, it actually does because the main targets for those intelligence collection uh, cooperation networks are outside of the network. So the um, inside of the network collection is more of an exception. And they usually have to come up with stories on how that happened, you know, because of course the US citizens don't want to know that the uh, British are spying on them. Bad for the relations, you know. So you actually have to be very careful when you do that. But if the US or the UK spies on Iran, nobody gives a shit about the uh, feelings of the Iranian citizens. So in a way, you being outside of, of these groups actually makes you an official designated target instead of an exceptional target. So it's not, it doesn't really help. You know, it, it, mm. you are a designated target, you know, live with it. So in a way, yes, it might actually be smarter to, to be within a five ice country or a 14 ice country. If you take everything else into consideration as well, you know, local laws, etc. Yeah. And, and then you mentioned something else uh, before, and that is stealing data because countries don't have an issue with stealing data. Uh, and I think Switzerland is a, is a great example for that because Switzerland has really tough laws when it comes to banking secrecy. So if you're working for a bank or even if you're not working for a bank and you're revealing data about who's the owner of a bank account, what kind of transactions were made, what's the balance, etc. In Switzerland, you can actually go to jail. And the thing that has happened for a couple of years is that you had bankers from Switzerland, like people working in banks in Switzerland, collecting data and selling it to foreign nations for enormous amounts like 20, 50, whatever million euros. And one of the countries that was actually really happy in buying uh, the state was Germany. So Germany mm. actually had, well, some states in Germany um, had deals with those so-called whistleblowers. Um, you could also call them spies or data fencers. You know, I mean, they stole data, they sold it, and they broke the law. Because they didn't agree with the law, but still. And that is how Germany, for example, got all the data. Or if you remember the Panama Papers, their data from two Panamanian companies, uh, re registration companies and, and uh, legal firms, was stolen against Panamanian law, etc. And then everybody was talking about it, you know, and everything was published and and that is a, a common occurrence. You know, whistleblowers are a common occurrence. And what I always said funny is that the people that on the one hand say, oh, we need more privacy, blah, 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 um, were then happy about all the secrets from Panama or Switzerland being spilled, you know, because financial privacy is not privacy. You know, that is just stealing money from the social whatever community. It's the it's evil tax evaders, right? So. Exactly. Exactly. And that is, it's something that happens, of course, a lot more because what you have is stuff like 
die FBI paying data collection companies that illegally collect data. But it's the company that's breaking the law. It's not the FBI that's breaking the law. So you have those companies in the US and somewhere else that had uh, software development kits for uh, mobile apps that would collect location data. And then the FBI would just uh, buy that data. And you wouldn't mm. need a warrant or anything. And the FBI then had the location information of millions and millions and millions of phones all around the world, including in the US, uh, without a warrant. And it was mm. likely illegal activity by those uh, companies. But the FBI paid, the company disappeared, and the FBI itself didn't break any laws uh, because they just bought data that already existed. And you have the same thing with databases that are broken in, you know, like uh, hotel booking databases, flight booking databases, telecommunications uh, databases. There are stolen each and every day and they're sold on the darknet. Sometimes they're actually directly sold to states. It's what we call uh, cyber espionage, you know, but it's it's not necessarily that it's like the intelligence service of somebody doing that. It's often just private groups that have figured out that you can make a shitload of money out of that. And sometimes it's mm-hmm. just random hackers, you know, like in the case with Estonia a couple of weeks ago, you know, everybody's saying, oh, Estonia has these huge, great privacy laws, and that is why our privacy in Estonia is protected. But it's bullshit, because the database that contains everything was hacked. Okay, they didn't steal everything from the database. But if you collect the data, the the data will sooner or later flow into the wrong hands. That's it. Which kind of brings us back to a theme where we um, used quite a bit is that if you want your data to be protected, you should create it in the first place. Yeah, I think it's a good uh, a good point that you make. You, you shouldn't create the data in the first place. And I think there, there are easy uh, ways to do that. So when it comes to communication, for example, I hear that Tor uh, solves that problem. It's what ProtonMail said. ProtonMail said you wouldn't have had the problem as you had used the Tor hidden service. Can you actually use ProtonMail with Tor? Or do they yes, you can. You no, do? you can. You can. Yeah? Yeah, they, ha- they have a hidden service. Okay, most, most sites block you or like you uh, spend half your day filling captures. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I knew, uh, I, I know you're baiting me. I, I'm going to take the bait. Um, such a classic, just your story. Um, well, first of all, what if, you know, like a big chunk of your network is actually controlled by your enemy? So if, you know, you... Because Tor is basically like this huge honeypot. So, of course, um, state actors, they, they're going to try to uh, get as much data as they can about Tor, which which runs two ways. Like, first of all, they're going to run a lot of Tor nodes. So, if they buy, um, by luck, get a, get a route to Tor, which is controlled by their own nodes, then you, you're, you're already totally fucked. And, but the other one, the, the bigger problem is actually that, uh, the threat mode in Tor is that the enemy has only a local view of the network. So they, they can, you know, they can look at parts of the global network, but they, they can't, you know, look at everything. 
But if you can actually look at, you know, the global network and then you can uh, trace all the, you know, information running through all tornos and, you know, collate it, then, then you can potentially de-anonymize it, which is a problem with um, low latency uh, anonymization. And I think we probably spent hours talking about that in one of the earlier episodes. Um, but uh, just just to repeat, uh, the, the basic problem is that, yeah, like I said, the, the threat model actually doesn't reflect reality. And reality mm-hmm. is that there are quite a few states who, who have a global view of the network. And they can potentially de-anonymize it by um, correlating uh, data flow. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing, I think, is that it's not just nation states that have that capability. I think that's that's one of the lesser known things about the reality of the internet is that the internet is a battleground. And one of the interesting industries on the internet is IT security. And there are companies that specialize in stuff like detecting if your traffic comes from a bad IP address and potentially even revealing behind uh, who's behind that IP address, even if that IP address is something like a Tor node or a, uh, a proxy or a VPN node. Because what a lot of people don't know is that this connection data, like who's connecting to whom, when, and how many bytes do they, uh, packages and bytes do they send in one direction and how much do they receive? That's so-called net flows. And net flow data is uh, collected and traded worldwide. So it's not a thing that you have to be the NSA to have that information. But in most data centers, in most ISPs, that data is generated anyways, because you kind of need it for analysis and resource planning and all these things. And then there are companies that buy this data and that use a lot of number crunching to get more information out of this data. And there are products where you can actually trace back uh, net flows through VPNs, for example, through, not through every VPN, but um, a lot of like single hop, non-randomly routed VPNs, you can trace back the data with one click. Or if there is a single proxy in between, you know, it's a one click and you and you run through that. You mean by, by buying the data and then... By buying access the to the product. So you're not buying the, the data itself, but there are companies like uh, Team Simru, that have a product where they buy this data from a lot of, or trade the data with a lot of companies, uh, ISPs and data centers, etc., and basically have this huge database of net flows, and where they can, uh, with a f- with a few calculations, basically trace back through multiple hops. For example, if you have a server that has been hacked into by somebody, and that server then attacks the U.S. government. The U.S. government can use um, global net flow data that it buys to trace back from where the SSH connection came that went through that server that then created the attack. And that is one of the ways they're doing what is called attribution. And it, it doesn't mean that it always works, you know, but it's, um, it's a thing that is commonly done. And it is available to a lot. There are a lot of entities that have access to the data. So it's not just Team Simru. I'm just mentioning them because their product is probably one of the 
technically best out there, but there are a lot of um, NTDDoS uh, providers, for example, that use NetFlow data to be able to um, locate the original source of uh, an attack because a lot of those attacks like spoof um, IP addresses and stuff like that. So you need NetFlow data to, to actually figure out where the data came from. So things like uh, Cloudflare, you mean, right? Uh, I don't... I don't know if Cloudflare does that. But I mean, like the Cloudflare would be an example of the NTDDoS. Cloudflare would be an NTDDoS uh, provider, but I don't know if they're doing that. You know, sure. I'm, I don't want to accuse them of, of anything because I don't know. But it's, it's really important to keep in mind that this data is basically available to anybody with the right connections and some money. You don't have to be the NSA to be a global passive attacker. You know, there are a shitload of global passive attackers. Um, there are mm -hmm. a lot of sensors that are built into uh, systems. So, for example, latency analysis is another thing, how tracing is done. You know, basically, you measure how long a package takes from A to B, and that allows you to basically use timing, uh, changes in this timing to trace back uh, connections through the global internet. And mm -hmm. just as a f funny example, because um, I really like the story, a couple of years ago, the Mossad killed a dude in Dubai, like a, a weapons trader for Hamas, I think, or maybe, uh, I don't know, a dude, you know, that was somebody the, the Israelis didn't like. They had this team of super schooled Mossad agents going to, to Dubai. And, you know, they wouldn't uh, greet each other on the street. They came in uh, different times with different planes or with a car or whatever um, to conceal that there was actually a team in, in place. And when the dude was killed, it just took a few days until the whole team was unraveled. And everybody was like uh, talking about, oh, this was because of the uh, video surveillance there in, in Dubai, because Dubai has a very high density of video surveillance. But that is actually not the full story. The more important part was that those agents used communication through a phone relay that and basically all called more or less the same number that was hosted in Switzerland, actually, if I remember correctly. And so uh, Dubai went through all the call patterns and saw that there's this uh, common thing that some people called during the operation. And they all had they all had new phone numbers, yes. right? But yeah. but they had this weird pattern that this all these phone numbers were basically uh, isolated. It was like an island, right? They wouldn't call anybody else except this one number, and yes. so that was highly highly unusual. Yes, they all basically popped up at the same time, you know, were like activated around the same time yeah. that they were used first, and so yeah. it's it's a very um, Suspicious pattern. I mean, yes. it, it kind of goes back to this whole, uh, what we talked about a lot before is that, um, metadata is, is actually quite revealing. Uh, yes. You, you don't even need to look at the, at the actual content of communication, just, you know, who's talking to whom at what time is, is like showing so much. You yeah. Know? Um, and the funny thing is that it's computers that can analyze these unusual behaviors. It's not like you have a hundred 
Dubai police officers sitting there going through every phone call and um, having a, a, a big table in the wall with strings running between the numbers. But um, there's specialized software that does network analysis and visualization for you that is built for exactly that that kind of stuff. And you can buy it actually for a few hundred euros. And mm. it will highlight, for example, these uh, highly integrated networks that are talking to the same hub or uh, disconnected networks that don't call anybody else. It's actually funny because there was this CIA operation in Italy when they nabbed uh, a terror suspect illegally. And it's the same thing that, that identified the CIA agents as they weren't careful with their phones. Which it kind of goes to show that uh, how hard it is these days to actually protect yourself against that. Because yes. these are people who, you know, they know about most of this or they should know about it. They're trained for it and, and they still don't manage to uh, not fuck it up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in a lot of cases, they're not that highly trained and intelligent as we think they are. Uh, I think the the funny thing uh, with the CIA operation is they believe that putting their phones into an empty bag for uh, potato chips or for the UK listeners, potato crisps would protect them because it's a metal thing and that must be a Faraday cage. So, um, and nobody ever had the idea to actually measure how good those bags are, are actually for, for shielding communication. And they quickly. Really? Yes. It was actually part of the CAA handbook for a while and nobody ever checked that, you know. So, and it's actually, I can tell you potato chip bags do exactly nothing. You know, they're not good Faraday cages and there's a good reason for that. But yeah, they suck. And you can't use them to shield your phone. I'm sorry. It doesn't work. Try it out at home. Take your phone, put it into potato chips bag after eating the potatoes, uh, potato chips, seal it tight, call it. It will work. And then take out your greasy phone. <laughs> and then take out your greasy phone. <laughs> you can lick your phone down to make it clean. Yeah. So how would you do privacy protection as a company or as an individual if you if you would take it seriously if you would take it seriously what are um, the lessons that you can take from all the sad sad things that we talked about well, well maybe one, one just to mention uh, you know of course the, the, the solution for uh, the top problem is um, high latency networks so um we had a whole episode on that, so yeah. that's not, we can talk about for hours on this, but just to make it clear that actually, uh, I think the, it's fundamentally the only way you can deal with that problem of uh, somebody having a global view on a network is high latency mixed networks. Yeah. Um, well, may maybe actually it's not the technical stuff that is maybe not that interesting because we started with legal stuff. Let's go on with legal stuff. You know, what are the, the legal pr principles or the operational principles, not not so much like code that has to be written. Well, I mean, like the, if we, we mentioned it already, but if, if you abstract the principle is that that kind of goes back to what we also mentioned before is like the UDA loop, you know, you, you do something mm -hmm. and somebody reacts to it. Yeah. And that reaction usually takes some time. So um, that means 
the kind of connecting it to the loophole fallacy, the loophole fallacy kind of thinks that that is a static situation. But usually the, the world is not static. So that means if you, if you want to, uh, really protect your privacy, um, you kind of need to constantly change. You have to mm -hmm. constantly move. So we, we already talked about then, you know, that this has what you coined the ephemeral registration. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, you, you know, you create a company and then you change that, have a new one, switch over. You can use the same principle for ephemeral infrastructure. You know, you have a server and then you create a new server or you have a new uh, mobile phone, mobile phone number. I already, um, mentioned the problem with, let's say, uh, with mobile phones is that when people, they, when they have that idea of like, Oh, I just changed my phone and my SIM card that they don't really, um, consider the, uh, the net, you know, the metadata problem correctly. So if you have like, uh, let's say a group of very privacy aware friends and you want to take that serious, that means you would have to switch all SIM cards and phones at the same time mm -hmm. and basically create a network again, which still sticks out, you know, so which you know. still totally sticks out because, you know, it, it already activates at the same time. And, you know, it's, it's like this cluster. Don't use mobile phones. Don't call each other on phones. It's so 1990s. Today, you use Signal or Threamer or whatever is out there, but don't call each other on your phone. I always get a heart attack if somebody actually calls my phone. You know, it's never anything good. It's never a friend. So. Yeah, I know no, that, that is absolutely true. Um, it's like, what is this number again? <laughs> <laughs> I ended up on this, I don't know. On this list, and now, now I'm getting calls. People wanting to sell me some crypto shit, you know, some ICOs or something. <laughs> Probably some exchange got hacked, and and now I'm like getting these uh, these really great offers to invest somewhere. Um, awesome. Yeah. So I mean, but but I, I think that that is a that is a good principle to uh, to keep moving and and change change things. And of course, I mean, you you generally you know. OPSEC for your devices should be, uh, should be good. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, it starts as basics like, okay, uh, actually install the updates. Yeah. Updates are always a good idea. You know, hard disk encryption, uh, actually switching off devices on a regular basis. Wow. Is that's revolutionary. It's not a bad idea. You know, all this hard disk encryption doesn't help you much when your device is in sleep mode. Yes. Um, Apple users out there closing your Apple doesn't switch it off. Doesn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, but I mean, generally from also from, from trying that myself for many years, um, it is really getting harder and harder every day. Yeah. If you want, if you don't want to create the data in the first place and the, the, the costs are insanely high. Yeah. I mean, not, not so much, let's say in, in monetary terms, but just in terms of, um, how much time you have to spend on it and how many things you can't do anymore, you know? And of course, with the whole, with the whole COVID shit, it, it got a lot worse. You know, because now you, you certainly have to, you know, show ID everywhere, like show certificates and, 
or a lot of places they're like, oh, we don't take cash because it's, you know, safer uh, and stuff like that. And I think with this whole, with this whole, you know, service economy, it's the same thing. It, it's really hard not to, not to, uh, create data that way. I mean, in, in Eastern European countries, you have often that, you know, things like, uh, Uber or the like, you can just pay cash and you can just buy a SIM card and you don't have to register it. But then in most countries, it's, it, you're always tied in somewhere with your ID or your credit, at least your credit card. Or a registered SIM card. Yeah. One of the two always. Yeah. It's usually both. Yeah. yeah. But, um, so if you, if you would want to avoid all of that, take a taxi. Well, I mean, it, no, I mean, it, it just means you, you not you cannot use those services. So that's what I meant with it becomes mm -hmm. expensive in a sense. It's, it's all these extra hoops you have to go through to not do that. And so, um, I mean, the only the good thing from the whole Corona thing, uh, I think is that it totally legitimized masks. Yeah. And that will be usable for, um, many years to come. Yeah. You know, somebody asks you when it's over in a couple of years to just give them that, that, you know, no, just cough, just cough. You know, it's like they look at you strangely for wearing a mask. Your response is coughing, you know, no more questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, I think it, it is absolutely, it's very hard. Yeah. Very hard to protect your privacy. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I agree. I have nothing to add. I'm, I'm just wondering, will there be, are there options like legal regimes that you, that we didn't talk about yet that will fix our problems? Like, can we go somewhere that is not a country? Cyberspace, the oh, metaverse. The metaverse. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a favorite uh, word of yours for the last two weeks. Uh, I actually have to ask you later why that is the case. It's the next big thing, you know. First we got crypto, then we got uh, DeFi, then we got NFTs, and now it's going to be the metaverse. Run by Facebook or? Uh, like in general. Ah, okay. Okay. It's what they tell me on crypto Twitter. Ah, so it must be, tr it must be true. It must be true. Uh, can I invest somewhere? Uh, probably. Yeah. But the question is where not in Facebook, they, they, uh, because they suck and are too expensive already. Maybe there's some IDO somewhere. Okay. Cause it's not ICO time anymore. It's IDO time. What is the D standing for? DAO offering. DEX offering. Okay. Yeah. What the fuck? Okay. <laughs> the metaverse. I think the metaverse still has the problem, but we can put it on Starlink, right? Because now with Starlink being rolled out by Saint Elon Musk, that fixes it, right? Elon fixes it. Elon fixes this. So, um, now we have direct connections up and down from space, you know, satellites. And those satellites will sooner or later directly interconnect. So if you have a Starlink and I have a Starlink, then our data never flows through our countries. So maybe we have privacy then. What do you think? So you're basically just, you mean we route directly through the Starlink satellite? That is what they promise, yeah. 
Did I promise that? Yeah, well, so uh, shout out to Lucky. Lucky told me all about it. Um, and it's the next big thing. So, But do they promise privacy with that or is it just that? Well, you, you're you not in your country anymore. You know, you're in space. So what's the problem? Of course you have privacy. I mean, privacy in space. No? Because Elon will not collect the data and not give it to the US government? Yeah, exactly. That's the thing, you know. So Starlink still falls under um, US jurisdiction. And I think Elon has enough to lose that he will cooperate. And funnily, there have been uh, people that have been using Starlink for uh, BitTorrent that actually um, got warnings from Starlink that they should do that. So... Because of the fair use policy or because of the IP violations? Because of IP violations. So maybe that's not the greatest of all ideas either. And of course, the, the issue is that if everybody collects, uh, connects to Starlink, then we just have to fire up um, our previous nice system um, called, codenamed Echelon, uh, which is actually a real system, or was at least, um, that was um, specialized in intercepting uh, satellite communication on the ground and beyond horizon, among other things. So maybe they upgrade that a little bit. But what about, I mean, this, I mean, Moore's law applies, right, everywhere, basically. So uh, what about um, we, we shoot up our own satellites? Microsatellites. Uh, the the yeah. problem with, with satellites is that even though they're in space, doesn't mean that they're out of law. So unless you're a nation state, you actually have to register your satellites and you have to give mission control to uh, licensed uh, companies for that. And what you need, a, like a satellite license? No, you need a company that is licensed to fly your satellite. Uh, and they have like uh, control over it. They have control over it. To make sure nothing goes wrong. Uh, yeah, I mean, they don't want you to crash into another satellite. You know, so, I mean, it's a justified uh, thing. So, yeah, shooting up your satellite doesn't doesn't get you out of the law. There's actually space treaties and all that shit, you know, like everything that humans thought about, uh, they created a law for. So even space is regulated, even space is regulated. What about parallel universes? Maybe we can go there. I, so the philosopher in me tells me that the probability of hitting a much worse universe than ours is uh, extremely high. Unless you, you know exactly what multiverse, uh, what, what other universe you, you enter in the multiverse, that might be a really, really bad idea. Uh, plus, I think we're still lacking the technology to jump from multiverse to multiverse or universe to universe in our current multiverse. Because in the end, you know, you might jump there and all the other people there are just Boltzmann brains. So I, I'm not sure that's a great idea. So. <laughs> So yeah, space might not be the solution until we occupy Mars, because I think even the moon, there's a moon treaty, which I think puts the moon under UN control. And if you know anything about the UN, uh, you really, really, really don't want to be uh, under their control. 
they're basically the combination of all the worst things you have in the States. You know, the lowest common denominator um, is, um, is the UN. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> okay, what other options do we have? I see you're still an anarchist. I'm, I'm relieved. <laughs> <laughs> more so today than yesterday uh, or the year before or the, yeah well we could go to the C maybe I mean, if space is an option maybe C is well funnily there they have been attempts to do that already uh, so if you know your uh, cypherpunk slash crypto anarchist history uh, we of have course. things like Sealand um, this little artificial platform um, at that time outside of uh, British waters where um, a few people actually tried to run a data center um, and gambling and pirate radio stations, etc. As far as I know, that kind of didn't work out that well. Both legally it didn't and then there was the issue of having a good internet connection there and that you also have the issue that you're not really protected against people that want to take you over. So piracy is an actual thing on the high seas. And if you just want to put it on a ship, um, you kind of have the issue that your ship has to be flagged in an existing country. And if you're not flying a flag, then you're up to grabs to every other nation that comes by with their navy. So... Mm. Unless you know how to defend yourself against the local navies, I don't think that that's an option. Maybe underwater. Splice some intercontinental fiber and you know put a data center in there. Which is actually a really good idea. And you might actually know that so Microsoft had a multi-year-long research project on autonomous data centers in uh, water, like uh, putting it into basically special containers and sinking it uh, off the coast of uh, California, I think. And that worked surprisingly well. Uh, so it, it's actually good for computers if humans don't touch them. And cooling is actually much easier underwater um, than it is in air. And uh, getting energy is still a little bit of an issue. And I'm not sure if splicing an international fiber connection is an idea that will give you a lot of friends. Let me say it like this. I think they, there, there might be a few people that could be pissed. Yeah, I think the, the downtime, the people don't like downtime. Right? Well, you can, you can talk to the specialists because there are people that do that. So both the um, Russians and the Americans have uh, submarines that are specialized in splicing uh, undersea cables. So maybe you can hire some Russian corrupt uh, general if you can find one and tell him, hey, let's dive down there and install this little uh, rack underwater. Um, because funnily, um, you not only have data there, but you also have uh, power. Because um, every so many kilometers, you have a, a fiber relay in these um, cables that basically receive the data and then uh, send it again. And they are powered. So maybe you can steal power from one of those relays even, you know, like 
Nobody will notice. Maybe we should take up uh, deep sea diving as a hobby. Okay, since you mentioned that, I have, uh, so it's one of my OCDs, right? Um, as you know, I'm really interested in uh, super yachts and beyond. And one of the hobbies of the ultra rich is uh, private submarines. So there's a company, I just forgot the name, of course, that is creating submarines that you can buy as a private person that go like four kilometers deep and have manipulators and all that stuff. And they have the size that you can uh, put them on your uh, mega yacht. So there's a new hobby um, among the uh, super insane wealthy people. And suddenly they're all interested in underwater exploration, apparently. And mm, why, could, huh, why could that be an issue? I don't know. Well, I think that they're not that much into really exploring, but the seabed is actually a really good place to hide things. So if you want to hide something, especially something that is extremely hard to find outside of any jurisdictional realm, um, then the seabed is really good for that. I mean, there are uh, treaties on, you know, uh, continental shelf use, commercial use, etc. But in theory, you can do almost everything down there as long as you aren't mining. And if you have a body to get rid of, put it into a coffin, dive down, bury it at four kilometers, and you can be relatively certain that nobody finds it. Because, you know, the reach of the uh, submarine um, is big enough that even if they know where your yacht is when you um, buried the body, you still have uh, hundreds or thousands of kilometers, uh, square kilometers to, to search for whatever you hit there. So maybe we do that with our computers and then have a little fiber going to the surface and we connect to Starlink from them. What about that? And a solar panel to power the whole thing. And, of course, wave power. You can always use wave power. Hmm. Well, I mean, Starlink is going to be able to trace you, but... Um... Yeah, but nobody's going to dive there. So, I'm pretty sure that so far no police unit on the planet has the common processes and equipment to go into international waters and steal your computers from the ground of the sea. So all the Bitcoin millionaires out there, you know, if you need a new hobby, talk to me. How much are these submarines? Uh, the submarines are uh, surprisingly cheap. So they start at 2 million euros. Nice. I'm wondering if these, I mean, these cartels, they didn't really uh, kickstart the, the do-it-yourself submarine movement, right? I mean, they could, but they didn't. They, they're not really open sourcing their uh, their designs. Yeah, mostly because the production facilities are an issue. You know, it's the wrong market. If you say, hey, I'm producing high-quality submarines for Colombian cartels, uh, your company is going to be shut down quickly. But if you're producing deep-diving submarines for the ultra-rich, then you can be registered and operating from the US. It's not a problem. Wait a minute, aren't these cartel guys ultra-rich? Some of them. Yeah, but those submarines don't uh, go for long enough. They only go deep enough. So ah, okay. that's the problem. 
That, that's the loophole. That's the loophole. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, while we're um, throwing around crazy ideas that any science fiction writer is happy to lap up, the other thing that is actually really interesting, and I, I have some hope on that, is the current geopolitical and international political scene is kind of in a flow as well. As we learned before, you know, nothing is static. Everything is in a flow. And sometimes you or most of the time you have to flow faster than everybody to get away with stuff. I think there's a certain hope that there will be countries that realize that a lot of these being friendly with everybody is not required that you only have to be friends with your neighbors and with one of the big power blocks and you can ignore the rest. And they might find out that that's an actual business. So if they introduce jurisdictions that are data havens, um, that could actually be real business for them. So and there are a few countries that have those special jurisdictions for other industries already. You know, like uh, Dubai um, is, is a good example. Actually, Dubai is not a bad place if you want to hide data. But you have similar things, for example, in, in Serbia. Uh, there's a couple of countries in, in Latin, Latin America that are experimenting with uh, free zones for industry. So if they create special restrictions slash free zones for data, that might actually be a, a really interesting business right there. And... It might be the the next thing for offshore. Uh, so instead of offshore banking, you have offshore data banking. And that might actually be a realistic thing uh, to appear over the next 10 years. Yeah, similar to basically uh, usually smaller jurisdictions going for the, the for the tax haven status, yeah. going for the, for the data haven status. Exactly. Yeah, I was just... Uh, I think I was listening to some podcasts, but I was, I was thinking about this the other day that, I mean, now that we really, um, kickstarted this whole or like, uh, sped up the process of so many things going remote, the, the physical location actually matters less, I think. Yes. No. For sure. And so, um, it kind of puts also more pressure on, um, on countries to compete. Yes, because uh, people can work from more places. I mean, at least the ones who are in the position that they can work remotely. And some countries have already began to check in on that. You know, so uh, for example, these uh, digital nomad visas or residencies that you can get, be that Dubai, be that Croatia. Uh, so a few countries are already experimenting with exactly uh, that kind of market. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it kind of is like a, a next logical step that you also, um, yeah, make yourself more attractive to, uh, data centers, let's yeah. say. Yeah. So. Yeah. And the, I think the other thing is that comes from that is that you don't have to provide the full package anymore. You know, you don't have to be a great country, both for banking and for data and for criminal law and for, you know, all these things at the same time. But uh, virtualization, abstraction, mobility actually allows 
unbundling of state services. And mm-hmm. so maybe in the future, we'll actually have whatever healthcare from Switzerland and data protection from Montenegro and uh, military protection from Russia and court system from the UK or something like that. You know, so you basically shop your services from sovereign states. And then, of course, at some point, uh, a lot of those services won't have to be provided by sovereign states at all anymore. You know, so they'll focus only like on law, finance, maybe defense, and that's it. I, I find it kind of almost funny that the, the the concept of the physical location becomes becomes so much less important for some people. For some, but at the same time, it's still like always like this. A lot of the regulation is, is always about you know where is your residency. Yeah. Although the the concept of residency really becomes way more fluid. Uh, yes. And then I mean like. A lot of people are actually spending a lot of time. I mean, sometimes staying somewhere just to establish that, right? So yeah. yeah, which makes sense. But the thing we, we should never forget is that those solutions are usually only available to a very small minority. You know, for, for us, it's easy to, easy to think about those things because we have very few local physical social connections. We have jobs that allow us to basically work everywhere where there's enough internet. But in reality, that's a very small percentage of, of the world population or even the population in your country, my country, wherever we are right now. It's a very small digital worker elite that has actually a chance for doing that right now. Sure, I mean, and I'm speaking from the viewpoint of my own bubble, right? Yes. And <laughs> Plus, you're going to be in the metaverse in the future anyways. Yeah, with some tubes sticking out of my arms. Um, yeah. Matrix 4 is coming out. <laughs> Take the blue pill. <laughs> Go back into the Matrix. <laughs> exactly. Judging from the trailer, that's what it's about. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so funny, funny future, funny future ahead of us. We should probably dig deeper into some of those concepts, like uh, cyber states and all that stuff, in a future episode. And yeah, it sounds good. Because in reality, too long of an episode scares people away. So let's thank our. That listeners. is true. Yeah, let, let's definitely uh, get back to the cyber state idea. I, I really like this this uh, thought you mentioned once about, you know, uh, I think it was Estonia, right? Estonia mm-hmm. basically creating all the infrastructure for, um, you know, having data centers and embassies and so yeah. on so that they could actually become a cyber state in the moment the Russians would take over. Yeah, and yes, we'll talk about so, that. So that, that, that as, a te- as a teaser. Yes. As a teaser. And so then now it's time to um, go to our donation report. So as you know, we always report the uh, donations in the uh, currency, like the cryptocurrency usually, uh, where we got the most donations. So um, that's how we're going to do it today as well.
So, yeah, so that was our donation report. Um, thank you very much for the generous donations. And as usual, you can um, send us comments, uh, feedback, uh, presents to uh, various uh, addresses. So you can write us an email on bitstream at tz0.org. If you want to send us like physical mail, you find the uh, the mail address also on the website taz0.org. We also have a forum on uh, bbs bbs dot net, and yeah, that's basically the dimension of reach outside. Yeah, happy to to hear your feedback, especially uh, because we don't know if we still have listeners. Yeah, judging from the donations uh that might be maybe we're talking to the to the void here maybe check the server stats smaller if there's still people downloading there are they're just all cheap or bots so yeah they all have it on subscription but never listen to it maybe that's the case who knows um so yeah it was it was fun um let's repeat that sooner rather than later and uh Yeah, talk to you soon, guys. It was nice. Thank you for listening. Ciao. Thanks. Bye-bye.